So I was talking to uh, some of our members this week and talking about worship because I knew I'd be preaching uh, this text today. And I was saying, like, to prepare to be a pastor, I had to do a lot of school. And, I mean, I did four years of Bible college. I did three more years of, of seminary training. And I was saying and sharing with some of our members, I was saying, you know, it's, it's, it shocked me that through all my training, I maybe, I, I can only remember maybe having one class, maybe, where we actually talked about worship. We actually talked about, um, like, what we are to do when we gather the church together, and we sing, and we praise, and we pray, and we, we look into God's Word, and it was just kind of assumed that we all knew what to do and why we do what we do. Uh, it was just kind of assumed that we would just kind of figure it out. It, it wasn't always that way. They used to train pastors a little bit more into like how to lead worship and, and how to put you know church together type of thing, the church service together, I mean. Um, but maybe we've like kind of delegated that out to like worship teams and praise leaders and things like that. And so like I cannot remember in my whole training to be a pastor of actually doing what and thinking about and, and talking about and trying to discuss and learn about what it is that we're actually doing when we gather together in church, when we gather together corporately to worship. And I would say that uh, one of the major areas in which evangelical churches like ours lack discernment is in this area of worship. We don't, we don't have a good understanding of what we're actually doing when we gather together as a church. And, um, you know, most of us just follow our tradition. How many of you guys grew up, and just asking, uh, wondering, how many of you guys grew up in, like, high church tradition with, like, the prayers were all written out and you just kind of followed? I mean, I grew up and I was always kind of going up and down at church because I was kneeling and standing and sitting and kneeling. Anybody grow up like that? All right. Any, any, anybody grow up in the, um, I, I don't know, anybody grow up in, uh, like, the Pentecostal tradition where there's, yeah, your kind of hands are raising, dancing around and... Um, you know, it's funny, my dad uh, came back, my dad was starting to come back to faith after many, many years of kind of not being a Christian at all, and because uh, he, he was down in Texas, and he, um, he met a, his lawyer actually was a church planter in the Pentecostal tradition, and so his lawyer had invited him to church, and my dad was like, this was amazing, like, you know, they had the drums and the electric guitars and the fog machines and all that, and my dad was like, that was amazing, but my dad had grown up Catholic, so he's like, I can only take so much of that, and then I got to go back over to the Anglican church, because the Anglican church he thought of as, like, Catholic light, right, and so he's like, I like it that they write down the prayers there, and, like, we have a, the form, and then, and then, but all his friends were part of the Baptist church, so then he would go to the Baptist church, and so that was kind of my dad's kind of reintegration, kind of reapproach. Uh, to faith was, was to kind of like this sampling, and he'd kind of go from one to another. Um, and, and it's just kind of, we kind of just kind of follow our own tradition, what kind of church we grew up with. We, we, we tend to follow our preferences or, you know, or what blesses me or this is what I like. Or we, or we follow the culture. You know, we just do this because this is the way that we just thought that church had to be. And it's weird that we don't really have a good understanding of what worship is or why we do what we do because it's one of the biggest things we do as a church family. We gather together to worship God. That's what we're doing here, right? Like, 
I hope that's what, what, what you came for and what, what I came for, is to actually gather together to worship God. And that brings us to chapter 5 of the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, we've, been, we've been kind of tracking through the book of Ecclesiastes this winter, and um, I'm not, I'm not going to refresh everything uh, today, but, but in chapter 5, there's a big shift in the book of Ecclesiastes. Like so far in Ecclesiastes, he's been basically describing life to us. And he's been describing, if you've been following along, he's been describing some of the frustrations of life, some of the futilities of life, some of the things that get us just, you know, vexed and sorrowful about life and the confusion in it. And what is this all about? And, and he's pointed us to, to God and that, 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 that where we actually find the beauty in life is when we see and receive all things from the hand of God. And, and up until this point, he's been basically describing for us realities of life. And in chapter 5, he actually changes and begins. This is the first time he actually now begins prescribing to us. And, and, and so his language goes from just description to instruction. And chapter 5 is where that begins. And where that begins, particularly in chapter 5, as he goes from uh, description to instruction, is in our worship. And in how do we approach God? And why do we approach God? And, and, and here's the thing. This frustrates people who think of the book of Ecclesiastes as mainly negative. Like chapter 5 seems to come out of nowhere. And I'm, I'm like, man, chapter 5 is like the answer. Because what we've looked at over the last couple, couple weeks or month or so is, is that I honestly think Ecclesiastes is one of the most life-giving, joy-giving books of the whole Bible. But we have to understand it correctly. We have to actually see that Solomon's actually building a case to show us and to, to convince us that life is actually beautiful when it's received from the hand of God. And so, and so that's why this chapter 5 is really important because here now is the first time he's actually instructing us to do something in the book. And what he instructs us to do in the book is to worship. Is to worship. And worship in the way that God has, at, has commanded us to worship. And so basically, it's a very simple message today because we're just going to do what he, I'm just going to explain kind of what he tells us to do about this idea of worship. And Lord, I pray that as, as, uh, as I speak, my words, my words, what comes from me would be few. And that we could actually see you for your glory and for who you are. And worship you for who you are. Holy Spirit, I pray, God, that you'll be speaking far more to the hearts of those who are gathered here than uh, anything I could say or do. In fact, God, hide my words in yours. In your name we pray. Amen. So he says basically two things about worship. Um, we approach God in, re in, in reverence, and we approach God in sincerity. Well, that's the whole message today. And there, there's one then huge thing that we're going to get at, to, at the end. But that's it. We approach God in reverence and we approach God in sincerity. We approach God in reverence. He says, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. For they don't know that they're doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. Because God is in heaven and you are on earth, therefore let your words be few. For a dream comes with much business and a fool's voice with many words. 
He says, guard your steps when you gather together for worship. Guard your steps, meaning uh, keep watch on how you approach God. Uh, his, you know, in, in his time, he was speaking when we were approaching God, this would mean at the temple. Solomon actually uh, was given by God to build the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem. So Solomon, he's talking about to his people, Solomon in this book is called, uh, is called the preacher. He's the one who speaks to the gathering of the people. And here he's preaching and he's saying, listen, when you come into the presence of the Lord, as you come together to worship God, guard your step. Keep careful watch on your approach. We're to keep careful watch on how we approach God in worship. Yet many of us, we, we don't. We, we, we come without thinking that we are actually gathering together as the people of the Lord. Not that this house, not that this building is a very special place, but the gathering together of God's people together in worship, that is a special thing. And so this Sunday morning, today, as you left your house, did you know that you were going to come together and be assembled together with all of you? And I'm looking around. It's great to see you, my brothers and my sisters. But we're here today not to see one another. We're here today to worship our God. And he says we should take care of how we worship or we may, in our ignorance, in our, in our lack of thinking of what we're actually doing when we gather together, we may be offering to him what he calls up here, he calls this the sacrifice of fools. The sacrifice of fools coming together ignorant of what is our purpose for why we are gathered here. The sacrifice of fools. Now he doesn't go on to explain what the sacrifice of fools is, but we are given some pictures in scripture of what the sacrifice of fools look like. In uh, Leviticus chapter 10, for example, the sacrifice of fools is given, the picture of the sacrifice of fools is, um, what are their names? Uh, Nahab and Abinu, that's it. Nahab and Abinu, I couldn't, I couldn't think of their names. Leviticus chapter 10, they offer strange fire before the Lord. Or the ESV says they offer unauthorized, unauthorized fire before the Lord. Now, I don't know what that is. I don't think anybody really knows what that is. All we know is that they were seeking to, 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 to approach God in some form of worship that he did not prescribe. That they were seeking to approach God in some form of worship that he had never told them to do. It was unauthorized, as the ESV puts it. And God actually judged them by causing the fire to flare up and consume them. The best picture I know of in the Old Testament of the sacrifice of fools was, um, it's one of my favorite chapters of the Bible, 2 Samuel chapter 6. In 2 Samuel chapter 6, they're bringing the Ark of God, uh, the Ark of God had been in the territory of the Philistines, and they are bringing it into Jerusalem to be set up in the tabernacle. David is, is calling them to bring the, the Ark of the Lord back into Jerusalem so that they could worship him in Jerusalem. And they are having what would have been, to any of us, it would seem like the greatest worship service of all time. It talks about they're singing and dancing and tambourines are playing, yet... When they're bringing the ark of the Lord back into Jerusalem, they're not actually doing so in the manner that God has prescribed. Like, like in the book of Leviticus, God tells them how to carry the ark of the Lord. You're supposed to have special people do it in a special way with special poles on their shoulders bringing the ark of the Lord forward. 
And instead of actually doing what God has prescribed for them to do, they're having this amazing, it seems like an amazing experience of worship, singing and dancing before the Lord, and they're bringing the ark of God on an ox cart. And as the cart teeters, uh, Uzzah, one of the guys, takes out his hand to steady the, Lord, the ark of the Lord. And, and you were not allowed to touch it. And in his irreverence, and in that entire irreverent way of worship, God actually strikes him down dead. Can you imagine in the middle of this worship service, suddenly there's Uzzah on the ground? God took his prescriptions in worship very, very seriously. In the, in the New Testament, there's you know, something I could imagine that would be called the sacrifice of fools. In the New Testament, in Corinthians chapter 11, the church is coming together and they would have these love feasts. In fact, kind of similar, I guess, of what we're going to be doing after service today. They, they would have a meal together as the church. We're, we're going to have a meal together after church today. And they would have a meal together. And what happened was the, the rich people who didn't need to work on that day would come early and they would get the best places, get the best places to sit. And they would start eating and start drinking and start consuming of this love feast. But those who were servants and weren't able to get off until later, they would come later when their masters would let them get off. And by the time they came, there was no place for them to sit and there was no food left over. And so Paul's like, the rich people are sitting down to eat and the, poor, the poorer people have no opportunity to partake in this love feast. And what Paul says of their worship as they gathered together in the church, he actually says, when you gather together to worship me in this way, and this is chilling, he says, you do more harm than good. Can you imagine God saying that about our worship? That when we gather together to worship God, it would be better if we stayed home because we're, we're doing more harm than good? That we're worshiping with him with the... Sacrifice of fools? Well, those are three examples from the Bible. What about in our own day? I mean, what about on our own day? And, and so this is, again, this is, this is some of my suggestions. You could take this with a grain of salt, but, you know, I was trying to reflect on what would the sacrifice of fools look like in, in our day? Um, the sacrifice of fools would be to Construct our own worship services around our preferences rather around the ordinances that God has prescribed in his word. Uh, there was actually a number of years ago, there was, a, there was a movement among evangelicals to do this very thing where one of the pastors of a large church in the States actually went around to the neighbors of the church, not the Christians, but to the neighbors around the church and asked them, you know, uh, what form of worship our church should take in order, you know, that, that it might be, you know, that you might want to come. Now, to be clear, you know, okay, our worship services, they're, they're, they're cultural forms that we do. And, and I don't believe that God actually prescribes a lot of form. We, we have some liberty in the forms that our worship takes. But if our, if our first thought if our first thought, and, and pastors, we struggle with this a lot, because we'll read blogs and we'll go to leadership conferences and they'll be like, here's how to preach to be more entertaining, you know, to bring more people in, or here's how to do your worship so that if our first thought is how to be relevant and to please us, rather than what is God asking, what is God desiring? That is where we need to really take care. 
The sacrifice of fools would be to come into worship and center it around myself and my needs and my preferences rather than seeking God and his desires. There was a famous um, pastor and his wife, and she, she recently, they're, they're on stage in their church, and she had said something to the effect of, when we come together, this is more for us. It's not for God. Even our worship is not about God, it's about us. I had the exact quote written down and I took it out of my notes and I just put it back in. Sorry. So I'm paraphrasing that. But I, I, I want to read from, um, from a pastor who wrote about this spiritual narcissism. This is what he says. He says, many of us modern evangelicals seem to think that the purpose of a church service is to entertain, to exhilarate, and to energize some of us go to church not so much to worship God, to stand in awe of his grace to us in Christ, to stir up our affections for him, but rather to consume, to sit back, to fancy the musical experience and apply the self-help advice we glean during the sermon. The pastor is expected to be clean-cut, non-offensive and smooth, and the musicians to be talented and contemporary. The congregation to be good-looking, middle-class, to act and look like you. A great majority of us appear to actually select our churches not by the sound and dynamic preaching of the scriptures, but by these outward considerations alone. Some newspapers have even begun to go around and rate churches on these externals as one would rate a local restaurant. There you have it, a worship of consumerism. In other words, this new mentality we've embraced is none other than the worship of self. And then we self-righteously attack those who differ from us, who don't use the seeker-sensitive model and lose sight of the fact that the, worst en- that the worst enemy is, more often than not, the person we see in the mirror. After you've narrowed it down and found a local church which preaches the word and faithfully administers the sacraments, I don't contend that there are other val- valid secondary considerations, but we must be faithful to God in maintaining that worship is in no way a form of entertainment. A church that is self-congratulatory has become a questionable fellowship because the function of the service has gone from the scriptural command to worship God to the idolatrous worship of self. God should be central among you, not you. That is, he should be the central focus in our song, in the proclamation of the word, and in the administering of the sacraments. Self-focused, self-absorbed, psychological sessions whose main purpose is to generate good feelings about ourselves is idolatry, a breach of the first and second commandments. This tragic lapse into consumerism is devouring the church and making mincemeat of our local assemblies. Instead of finding the service meaningful and God-glorifying, Centering in the Trinity and especially on the person and work of Christ, many spend their times asking themselves what they got out of it. Rather, we need to be asking ourselves, was God glorified in our worship of him today? Guys, listen, we've been trained. We are trained every day in our culture to be consumers. We are. It's very hard for us to get out of that. It's very hard for us to get out of that mindset. And and our prayer would be, as as a church, as the body of Christ here, that our, our, our true and our sole desire would be to see God glorified and enthroned in, in, in your hearts and our hearts together as his people. But 
Heavenly Father, I already confess that uh, it's so easy to go through the motions. Father, forgive us for when we have taken the worship of you and made it into a marketplace. Amen. Worship, the sacrifice of fools, would be to take God's word to pick and choose of what we want to hear. In this passage, again and again and again, he, he says, um, don't be rash with your mouth. Don't let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth, therefore let your words be few. He's not saying here that when we come together as a church, we should not be speaking words to one another or before God. I mean, I'm speaking to you right now, am I not, right? And I need to be hasty. I need to be careful, not hasty. I need to be careful that the words I'm saying are in line with and aligned with his words. But what we need to be always evaluating as we come together, and in fact, you are commanded, and I am commanded, you are, we are commanded as we gather together as a church to sing to one another with songs and hymns and spiritual songs, that the, the Word of God might be among us and within us, and we'd be proclaiming to each other and edifying and encouraging and admonishing and building each other up. So you've got to do that with words when you come together. What I do believe he's saying here is that our words should, as I prayed before I preached, our words should be hidden in Christ's words. That the effectiveness and the authority of the words that we speak, the words that I say as I speak to you, and the words that you say as you encourage and admonish one another, the effectiveness and the authority in those words is found in Christ's word alone. And that's how the word of God is abiding among us as we, as we, as we, as we, as we take the Word of God, meditating on it first, reflecting on it ourselves, having it convict our own heart first, and then speaking it to one another. That's, 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 not the, that's not the sacrifice of fools. The sacrifice of fools is to pick and choose from the Bible what it is that we, would, what, that, that we care for, that we agree with, that we want to obey, and what parts we would just simply ignore and set to the side. And the principle that he says is behind this whole thing. Here's the one principle. You are not God. That's the principle behind this whole passage. When we come and when we approach God and we take care in how we approach God, the principle is in our speaking and our hearing, we are not God. Who are we to sit in front of God's word and say, I like that, I don't like that. I'm going to agree with that, I'm not going to agree with that. And I'm not talking about me, the pastor. I'm talking about the Word of God. If you've got questions about, you know, what I'm speaking, that's fine. And I always will try to say, listen, this is my wisdom and my thought here, and this is what I'm getting right from the Scripture. I will try to do that. If I don't do that, please call me out, actually. But the principle here is God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. When you speak and when you approach God in worship, take care in how you come. So I want to talk a little bit of, just quickly, and this, this, is, this is, I will say this, this is, this is some of my understanding of, of what this means 
for us as a people and us individually and as us as we come together as a church. So what this means for us as we come together as a church? We want to put thought into how we worship God together. Like, that's, that's, what, that's, that's kind of on us all together as a church family, is to put thought into how we come together in corporate worship of our God so that the focus is not on me, on our worship team, on you. It is on the Lord. And so some of the things we do, and, and just so I can, some of you guys are new, so I want to just kind of take you through what we do when we gather. Uh, we, we, when we gather as a church, the, the things that our worship team does, before we even start, is we pray. We want to pray together up here that, that the Holy Spirit will be speaking to you, that the Word of God will be powerful among you, and we pray before we worship. And then, like Izzy did it today, then she'll be over here, and she will do the call to worship. Now, the call to worship is, is, is usually, you, know, you did the, uh, one of the Psalms today, right? And what the call to worship is basically what it sounds like. We are calling the people to worship. So some of you guys are out there chatting, or you're chatting in here, and that's fine. When we do the call to worship, and we usually do scripture and then a song, what we're actually saying is, hey, everybody, come on in. We're about to worship God. And that's how we start. Okay? And then uh, we'll, we'll sing the song, and then what we'll do is what we started doing this fall is doing a prayer of confession, where we are confronted by one aspect of God's Word, and then together we're responding, and we're actually coming before the Lord, and, and we had even that time of silence today, where we actually quiet our heart before the Lord, acknowledging that He is God in heaven, that we are on earth, that He is great, that we are not, that He is perfect, that we are not coming before him and actually quietly bringing our sins and ourselves before the Lord, saying, Lord, we are in need of you and your grace. That's why we do that time of confession. We usually do that in connection with our scripture reading because we hear the word of God, we see God for who he is, we see ourselves for who we are, and we confess our sins to him. And when we confess our sins, he is what? He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. That is awesome. We then take up a time of offering to meet our ongoing needs of our church and of our missionaries. Listen, my heart before the Lord is never to make that time manipulative. If you're a member of the church, if you're part of this church family, yes, then we have a responsibility before the Lord to take care of one another, to take care of our missionaries. But we're not going to do that by twisting a knife in your back and having appeals Right? I, I honestly believe that it's unethical for a minister of the gospel to twist your arms until you give. And so we are not going to do that, but we are going to put a family expectation among the members that we take care of, of those needs. So we do that. And then I preach. And when I preach, I try to... My, my whole goal in preaching is to do three things to explain the Word of God, the meaning, to explain the meaning of the Word of God. All right, so just put the passage up, tell you what it says, that's first. Secondly is to explore the significance of the Word of God for today. So that might be where it's, I'm, I'm getting a little bit out on the ledge there, right? Because I'm saying, okay, as I have reflected on the Word of God, and I'm trying to understand this is what it meant back then, and now I'm trying to explore some of the significance for us today. So that's what I'm going to do, and sometimes I'm going to do that well, and sometimes I'm not. And I'm not even going to try to explore the significance of the Word of God for every single one of your lives. Praise the Lord, the Holy Spirit, I hope, is doing that for you. But I'm going to try to do a little bit of that. Explain the Word of God, explore the Word of God's significance, and then here's the cool part. This is what I want to do when I preach. I want to exalt 
the Word of God. I want to exalt the Son of God, Jesus Christ, because He is our salvation. He is our rock. He is our shield. He is our fortress. And so I want to take a text and run to Jesus. Okay, so by the end of the service, that's what we're going to do. Okay? But that's what I attempt to do. So it's not my word. It's not me and my opinions. It, I'm trying to do when I preach. Explain, explore the significance, and exalt Christ. And I hope that you track with me and do that. And then, here's what we do, and then we, we celebrate together. So we put most of our worship of what we think of as praise and worship, we put that after we've heard the word of God explained and explored and, and Jesus exalted. So that when we sing, when we have our time of singing, we're coming as we've, we've sat under God's word and as the Holy Spirit has been speaking to us, then we respond in praise. And so that's what we do. A lot of evangelical churches, we've been putting that at the beginning, kind of like to warm ourselves up for the word of God. We've, we've kind of put it differently. We put it at the end so we can like respond. And then we do, and this is one of my favorite parts, then we do the Lord's Supper together every week. Because at the end of the week, the focus has to be put on Jesus. That our salvation, our sanctification, and our hope of our future home in heaven is not in ourselves, it is on what Christ has done for us. And that's why we come back every single week to hold up the bread and say, this bread represents the body of Christ that was broken for us. And this cup represents the blood of Christ that was spilled for us that we might be brought into a new relationship with God. And that we might await for his kingdom of righteousness, justice, and peace in heaven. And that's what we do, and that's a celebration of what he has done. And, and, and here, this is the thing. Some of you, if you're not yet a Christian or if you haven't professed your faith yet publicly, we ask you at that point to actually not partake in that part of the service. Why do we do that? Not, it's not because we want to be exclusive. Or, well, we do, in a, in a sense, want to be exclusive. It's because that, that celebration of what God has done for us in Christ must be received by faith. It must be personally received by faith. You do not become a Christian by walking into a church any more than you become a doctor by walking into a hospital. Right? In fact, you don't even get healed by walking into a hospital. You actually have to take the remedy that is prescribed. And so, and so that's, the, that's the whole point. You do not become a Christian just by showing up week to week. You become a Christian by personally placing your hope and your trust in Jesus Christ. And so that is what we proclaim every week. So that's a little bit of corporately why we do what we do here in order to exalt Christ in our midst. Personally, let me give you three things that you can do in order for you to guard your steps as you approach the house of God. Uh, first, before service. Before you, before you even get here, here's some things you can do. Like get some good sleep Saturday night. I'm looking at the university students, right? Sorry, didn't mean to do that. Get some good sleep Saturday night. If you're not a morning person, you know, get your stuff ready Saturday night. Uh, get some good sleep Saturday night. Wake up before your alarm clock. I know it's hard. And when you get up, begin to pray. Lord, this is the day that you've made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. And, and listen, we have one job when it comes to gathering together as the body of Christ. Here's your one job and my one job. It says, in Hebrews chapter 10, it says, consider, 
Consider how you might encourage one another to love and good works. And so when you wake up Sunday morning, pray, Lord, I'm so excited to gather together with your people today. Lord, help me to know, God, bring some people to mind that I can be praying for. Bring some brothers and sisters to mind that today when I go and I gather with the body of Christ, I will look out for that brother and sister and I'll say, Lord, how would you have me encourage them today? That would be an amazing way to come to church, wouldn't it? With a list of people that you have on your mind that you want to connect with and say, I want to encourage them. And then pray to the Lord, Lord, prepare my heart. I want to see you. As you're arriving at church, as you're sitting in the pew before we start, say, God, I'm here for you. I'm here for you. During the service, that's before. During the service, um, pray. Be, uh, be engaged. Pray with us. Pray the prayers with us. Pray on your own. When I'm praying, you pray. As I'm speaking, you pray. And, and here's one thing you can do. You can write notes. All right? That just keeps you engaged as, as I'm speaking because I know sometimes I rattle on and on. So you can kind of take some notes. If you want to know how to take notes, I'm going to tell you something. But she's not here, is she? Next week, if you want to know how to take good sermon notes, sit by my wife. I am not kidding, man. That woman, she's amazing. So you just sit by her and watch what she does. Because I get home and I read her notes and I'm like, I said that? I'm like, her notes are more thorough than my manuscript. And she's very good at doing that. So, so meet my wife and sit by her and uh, that'll be amazing. Don't tell her I said this. <laughs> and, and here's what I would say also. Sing, sing, sing. We want to be a, we are singing church. We, 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 we keep we don't, we don't pipe the music over you so you can't hear yourself sing. We want you to sing. And I'm going to give you a little special hint today. Okay? Sit near the front. And I'll tell you what I'm talking about. We actually talked about this at our ministry team this week. Every week, I do the Lord's Supper, and I, I start at the front, and I go to the back, right? When I'm at the front, I'm all like, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm, you know? Because I hear everybody singing. When I get to the back, I'm like, man, this is dead back here. Because you don't hear the people singing behind you, right? Because there's no one behind you. So I'm telling you, next week, sit near the front. It's, it's a completely different experience. All right? Just wanted to tell you that. And afterward, the third is afterward, church doesn't end when we say amen. In fact, that's when body life begins. And, and this is what I say. That one thing I told you that's on our heart or th that we're called to do is to consider how we might encourage each other on to love and good works. Often that happens after we say amen. Meet someone new. Go up to someone and say, hey man, I'm glad you're here. Someone who's sitting in the corner who's not talking to anybody, go and welcome them. Love on each other. Pray for each other. You know, today we're going to have lunch after. Sit with someone you don't know and say, hi, I'm Dan, or that, whatever your name is. Don't say that. Right? Like, man, we're the body of Christ, and we're here not necessarily. That is such a benefit. That is such a benefit to knowing God. But he is the benefit. Consider, guard yourself as you walk close, as you approach the house of God. Second, and this is going to be much shorter, we respond to God in sincerity. 
This is the second prescription Solomon gives us. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Solomon's really into this word fool today. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. Sincerity. Apparently, this is not something we do so much today, but in Solomon's time, temple vows were one of the main ways that they would worship. They would, they would, um, they would involve a promise to consecrate things or money to God in return for granting a request in prayer. It, it, wasn't like, it wasn't like what I did when I was in junior high school. When I was in junior high school, my dad took me on a camping trip. If you've heard any of the stories about my dad taking me camping, you know that they all end with me nearly dying. And I'm not exaggerating. And so when I was in junior high, I was on a camping trip with my dad, and I nearly died. I was dying of an asthma attack in the middle of the forest, and all night I was praying. I was saying, God, if you, if, I was not a Christian. I was like, but God, if you, if you keep me alive tonight, my life will change. I'll be a good boy, and I'll go to church. And, and I survived, and none of that happened. Well, not immediately. I mean, thankfully, maybe God did hear my prayer, and years later I became a Christian, but... That's not what this was about. It wasn't an attempt to bribe or bargain with God. What it was was you would pray and you'd say, God, you know, please help me in this. And and, and if you do, I I will come back and bring you a sacrifice of thanksgiving. And you would actually say these prayers to what he speaks about here is a messenger from the temple. And you'd, you know, probably one of the priests. And you'd tell the priest, this is my vow. And so the priest would come after whatever happened came to pass. And the priest would say, well, you vowed that you would do this. And you'd say, what? Now, that must be some mistake. I wouldn't have said that, right? That's what he's saying here. <laughs> Why? Do not say before the messenger it was a mistake. And that was the temptation to avoid fulfilling the vow once it had come to pass. And Solomon's insistence here is not that we should refrain from making any such vows, but be careful, when we, be careful of what you say to the Lord. And do what you've said you will do. Like the clearest example of this is not from the Old Testament at all. It's from the New Testament. Acts chapter 5, the story of Ananias and Sapphira. Right? The Ananias and Sapphira, they had sold a, a property and they'd said to the apostles and to the church, we are going to sell this property and we are going to give the, entire, the entirety of the proceeds to the Lord. And after they had sold the property, even though they had said they were giving the entirety of the proceeds to the Lord, they withheld some of it for themselves. Now, Acts chapter 5 is very, very clear. It's not, it is not that they sinned in how much they did or did not give to the Lord. In fact, Peter tells them, the field was yours, and what you did with the field was yours to determine and decide. It wasn't that you gave less than a certain amount to the Lord. The, the, The issue was your sincerity. The issue was your integrity. You lied, not to, you lied not to me, Peter says. You lied to the Holy Spirit. And God struck them down dead. And now, listen, uh, when we read that passage, we're like, man, that seems a little. God strikes them dead for lying to the church? What's going on there? We're doing our Acts course right now. 
One of the first times I taught that Acts course, we're going through the, the, the book of Acts, and we said, okay, well, what is this teaching about the keys to the expansion of the church? Acts chapter 5, what is this passage teaching for us to get? And one of the guys, Peter Eddy, if you remember Peter, he said, it means we need to train our ushers how to carry dead bodies out of the church. And we're like, Peter, no. No, Peter, that's not it. What it means is that in the very beginning of the church, the very early stages of the church in Jerusalem, God wanted to impress upon the entire church how important integrity is. How devastating hypocrisy is. And I I sometimes say it this way, could you imagine what would become of the church if it was filled with people of low character, if it was filled with hypocrites, if it was filled with people who were lying about their actual relationship with God? Could you imagine a church like that? And sadly, most of us can definitely imagine a church like that. As many of us experience a church like that. But the point was in Acts chapter 5, God's sharing to the people, no, my people must be set apart. They must be people who walk in integrity of heart. And the message the church received in Acts 5.11, it says, And great fear came upon the whole church, upon all who heard these things. They walked in, as Solomon says here, the fear of God. Brennan Manning once said, The greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips and walk out of the door and deny him by their lifestyle. This is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. So guard ourselves as we come into the house of the Lord, that we, are, we approach God in reverence. We, we respond to God in sincerity. Which brings me to the final point that Solomon doesn't explicitly say, but it is in this text. And that's this. We approach God through Jesus. What do I mean by it? Solomon doesn't explicitly say it, but it's in this text. Solomon, behind this entire sex, behind this entire understanding that Solomon has of us approaching God in worship, standing behind this text is the entire biblical narrative of how do we approach God. How do we as sinful human beings approach a holy God? And in the Old Testament, the background of this text is that Solomon would have understood, in fact, he did understand because he built the temple. Solomon understands that the whole entire temple system was built upon this problem of how do we as sinful human beings approach a holy God? And the answer given in the Old Testament and trained to the Jewish people for thousands of years is that we approach God um, as sinful people acknowledging our sin before a holy God through an appropriate sacrifice given on our behalf by an authorized priest. That is how Solomon would have understood how we approach God, acknowledging our sin, offering an appropriate sacrifice by an authorized priest. And this temple system, it it existed for a thousand years after Solomon. The Jewish people were trained through it to understand that God is holy, God is in heaven, we are on earth, we have fallen short of God's glory. 
Yet we need someone to stand in our place, an authorized priest, bringing the appropriate sacrifice, making atonement for our sin. In fact, cleansing and removing the guilt of our sin so that we might approach God. And for thousands of years, this is what happened. They approached God daily, and every day blood would be spilt again and again and again. Every day there'd be an acknowledgement, an awareness of our sin. There'd be bringing together a bloody sacrifice to God through an, a, an appointed and authorized priest. The whole system was to prepare the children of Israel for the coming of Messiah. For the coming of Messiah, they were prepared to understand an awareness of sin, an acknowledgement of a substitutionary sacrifice by an appointed priest. And you get into the book of Hebrews, and we understand that what Solomon could have only seen in part has now been revealed in full. Therefore, brothers, the author of Hebrews writes in chapter 10, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus... Let us draw by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through the flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with the true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Jesus Christ has come into this world to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He suffered, he lived a life that we could not live, and he suffered a die and died a bloody, violent death in our place, on our behalf, our substitute, taking upon himself the condemnation that our sins deserved. In doing so, he was that sacrificial lamb that the entire sacrificial, sacrificial system that Solomon knew he was the fulfillment of. He died on the cross for our sins, offering himself up as a high priest in our place. He, he, he rose from the dead, demonstrating that he indeed was Messiah of God. And then he was taken up to heaven where he still remains our high priest. It is through him that Hebrews says later, through him, Jesus, through him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Listen, this is what we do when we gather together in worship. When we gather together in worship, it is incumbent upon us to watch our steps as we approach the house of, out of God to, to, to honor God in reverence because he is in heaven and we are on earth. It is demanded of us that when we respond to God, we respond in sincerity. That we do not flippantly make vows before God, but that, that our words are few in, in, in light of who he is and what he has done. But the reality is, none of our reverence and none of our sincerity is enough. Again, you do not become a Christian just by sitting in a church at all. Only through the work of Jesus Christ having been accomplished for us once and for all are we able to approach God in the, the word that amazes me here is in confidence. Is in, it, it, we boldly approach the throne of grace in confidence because of the all-satisfying work of Jesus Christ. That is what gives us reason to sing. Like that is what gives us reason to gather together.
That is why that God has called us as his people to bring together to him what he calls here, not the sacrifice of fools, but the sacrifice of praise. And man, that's my hope. My hope would be that we would be filled with an awe, with a love of Jesus Christ. If you're here today and you do not know Jesus in that way, we are so glad you are here. We are. And I would appeal to you, particularly to those who grew up in the church, I would appeal to you today, come to God through Jesus Christ. Acknowledge your sin before holy God. Turn from it. Turn to Jesus, that pure and perfect sacrifice. If you don't know what that means or how to do that, come and speak to me after service. I would love to chat with you. For the rest of us, I, I pray that as we continue to gather and worship week after week, we would take seriously Solomon's word to us to consider carefully how we approach this holy God.